Ben Jawalski, what's going on, man? I'm excited to be here. As usual, we are just full send right into the podcast with absolutely no pre-podcast discussion. Super no. excited to have a special guest here. Yeah, Michael Easter, author with us. What's going on, Michael? How are you? Nice to meet you. Good to meet you both. I'm glad to be here. I'm I'm the same way. I totally I was just working out. I totally lost track of time. I was like, oh my God, I'm in my gym and I'm like, oh, I have to be on in like five minutes. So I'm still in my workout clothes, a little bit sweaty, trying to rehydrate here. It's We're all just going right in. It's going to be a good day. Well, the most important, I mean, normally it's us, John and I talking about what workout we just hit. I too just came from a workout. Michael, what was your workout? Uh, just like 50 sets of bicep curls. Um, <laughs> nice. Perfect. That's all you need, really. That's all anyone needs. Um, did some, uh, floor presses. What else did I do? Um, did some rows, did some pull-ups, a, a lot of just upper body stuff, pushing, pulling, did some carries, did some planks, that kind of stuff. I don't know. You guys are the fitness experts. So you're probably in the back of your mind, spinning your wheels going like, yeah, that sounds like he doesn't well, first of all, there's no about. you guys, Ben is the fitness expert. I'm just <laughs> along for the ride. I'm, I'm, I'm right an expert on. in snarky comments. It's about the thing I'm best at. He's just I here like to look it. handsome. Pretty much. There you go. Goal <laughs> accomplished. Love well, it. You're, you're going to learn everything you need to know about me, Michael, since uh, we are going in this totally blind. Ben messaged me like, how was it, Ben? Three days ago, four days ago. He's like, hey, I've got a guest for the show. Monday is, he's an author and he's written this book. And he sends me a link knowing good and damn well I'm not going to read a book in three days. Like, right. that's everything you need to know about me. Just uh, nice. But well, I will get to it. all right. It. But Ben has read it, and we're going to talk about it because it uh, sounds like it's good stuff. So how would you guys meet? How do you guys know each other? So we know each other because I uh, tagged Michael like three times because as I was reading the book, I read the first couple chapters, and I was like, ooh, like this one is vibing with me. Um, so I posted about it. I was like, hey, so far, amazing book, highly recommended. Uh, kept reading it, posted about it again. I specifically talked about, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, is that Matakpa, you know, yes. basically reminding yourself daily of impending death, mm-hmm. uh, which is lighter than it sounds, John, don't worry. <laughs> yes. um, and then uh, I posted about that, and I think I tagged him. And then uh, once I was done the book, you know, maybe like a, a week later or something like that, I was just like, yep, 100% recommended. I loved every part of it. And uh, it's, Definitely when it comes to like onboarding new one-on-one athletes and and on all the various book lists I have online, uh, I'll definitely be adding this one to it because the entire premise of the book is, at least from my perspective, obviously Michael can talk a lot more about it and we'll let him, but the premise of the book is we're kind of facing a, a crisis as a society because everything we do is designed to make us as comfortable as possible. And that's part of the reason why we're not thriving and also probably not as happy as we could be um so i guess michael how much of that was wrong (laughs) (laughs) none you nailed it there's there's the cliff notes version right there yeah i mean so in the book i basically argue that all the advances we've made over the last hundred years the most influential things in your day like climate control how you get from point a to b the food system where your food comes from on and on and on They're all designed to make our lives as comfortable as possible, right? And make them easier, more effortless. That is great. That is what progress is. At the same time, that comes with uh, side effects, basically. So if you look at the things that are most impacting humans' physical and mental health right now, 
um, they all kind of revert back to this idea of always being comfortable and always having things as easy as possible. So everything from food being essentially engineered around comfort food, really calorie dense, easy to access. You don't have to work for it. Um, to the fact that we've engineered movement out of our days, people who listen to this can, you know, definitely get that. Um, but even everything from how, um, children are raised, the fact that like, we don't do things like rites of passage anymore. Kids spend a lot less time outside. Adults spend a lot less time outside, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that's definitely had some consequences. So in the book, I basically dive into that and really look at, I don't know, a handful of specific discomforts that we've removed from our lives that have sort of hurt us in a way. And how do you think about putting discomfort back in your life in a, in an intelligent way, I guess I would say. Well, I podcast with Ben once a week, so that's my discomfort. So that's right. <laughs> I totally count. Uh, <laughs> that's it. This really interesting concept, though. I, you know, particularly for I think Ben and I as CrossFitters, because that's I. I was laughing to myself today. I was reading just some comments online, which you you know, if you ever want to ruin your day, that's the quickest way to do it, typically. But CrossFitters have this mentality that if it's not, uh, if you're not hurting yourself, you know, I don't mean that literally, or uh, making something as hard as humanly possible, you're not doing it right, which I think is a really, to me, is a really interesting mindset that, you know, you just kind of have to go full send 24-7. Uh, and they view other people that go, that do workouts, to kind of to your point, um, that, you know, we wouldn't view a workout. Like Planet Fitness is a good example of one, where you often hear people make fun of them because they have pizza Fridays and donut Mondays or whatever, which sounds awesome, by the way. Um, but you know, like we don't do that. We just like, we go in and for that hour of the day, you're just, you know, crushing yourself. Is that similar to what you're applying to your normal life? Just, you know, you're looking at the things that are creature comforts and eliminate, are you advocating eliminating them or, or not? Well, I mean, like, let's, let's back up on that topic from the beginning. It's like, first of all, exercise, we invented it a hundred years ago. Right, like people didn't exercise, quote unquote, for like most of time, right? Because life took effort. So this was like an all day thing, right? You're out working right. a physical job. I think like 98% of people were farmers as early as 200 years ago. So <clears throat> once we realize that people who have sedentary jobs uh, seem to have worse off health than people who don't, Scientists go, oh, well, how come these cobblers who sit here are getting these, they'll just drop dead at any moment. But the people who like run them the stuff, they don't get that. What's going on? And we figure out it's exercise, right? It's like this movement these extra people are doing. So then we're like, okay, well, what do we do now? We invent exercise, right? And so we try and like pack in all this movement we used to get throughout the day into a whatever, 30, 60 minute period which is great. We need to do that. But that's just like one other thing, a way that our life has changed. And like, in some ways, it's probably in a lot of ways, how we used to move is probably a lot better for us than how we pack exercise in today. At the same time, it's totally impractical, right? Like right. I personally don't want to be out in the field toiling. Yes. I probably wouldn't get heart disease, all these types of things, but it's sort of trade-offs. So thinking about, so the book really kind of goes into like, what are the key ways that this sort of newfound level of comfort and ease has crept into our life. What have we done about it? Are those ways always the smartest? If not, okay, well, what are the other options that we have? 
And it sort of just tries to give people a roadmap. So I'm not like giving people very specific instructions, like do this thing every single day, but I am sort of just pointing at pointing this out overall. And I think suggesting some ideas that can be woven in. So for example, um, because you guys, uh, is sort of a, you know, an exercise focused podcast. One of the ways that activity has fundamentally changed over the last 2 million, million, 500,000, 200,000 years is that when you look at why the human body is built the way it is and what we're physically good at, we're good at running long distances. And we would do that in hunting. We would persistent hunt. So probably if you've read born to run, you know, you know, we're good at really running far in the heat. We'd chase animals down, we'd spear them, but then this would bring us to the second thing we're good at. And that is carrying weight. We're the only animals that can carry weight for distance. And when I say that, people are usually like, what about donkeys? I go, well, yeah, but we have to strap the weight to donkeys, right? They can't do it by themselves. Right. Um, and so these two activities really shaped us. Now, plenty of people still do the first thing, which is run slowly, right? Jogging is definitely a thing. Uh, but how many people for a workout will just carry weight over distance for a long ways? Not many. Right. So as part of the book, I traveled to Harvard. I met with a guy, Daniel Lieberman. Now he's the guy who did the original born to run study. And he really thinks that doing a lot of the activities that we sort of evolved to do and are built for, it could be uniquely good for us compared to a lot of other things. Cause humans really aren't that strong when you compare us to other animals. We're, <laughs> we're pretty weak actually. Especially um, John. Yes. Especially yeah. John. Especially. <laughs> Um, so in the book, I really look at like, okay, what was the role of carrying in human evolution? How did it shape us? Why is it still good for us today? Uh, and then I spent some time with, uh, this group of special forces soldiers in Jacksonville, because if you look at it, really the only group of people that have continued to carry weight over distance is the military in the form of rucking, right? Like that is the main right. fundamental form of training in the military. And when you compare rucking to running, which I think that running has just sort of default become the average person's like, oh, I want to get fit. I guess I'll run. Uh, the injury rates are just so much lower. Um, you're also hitting multiple systems. You're hitting strength and endurance. And it's just overall solid activity that no one does. So I kind of take these like weaves in and out of strange topics like that, I guess I would say. Yeah, I like how in the book you do a really good job of of like weaving multiple stories in it. I mean, obviously the original reason I fell in love uh, for full disclosure is obviously the hunting stories. We've talked about my hunting uh, adventures here on the podcast okay. actually quite a bit. Um, but I just, I love the idea. There was just so many ideas presented in the book about like pursuing discomfort in, in different ways. Um, and the fact that you were able to like weave in not only like your own story of like pursuing discomfort and pursuing your own misogy, is that, did I pronounce it right? Misogy, but misogy. Yeah. Okay. Everyone, everyone says misogy. So you're, yeah, you're yeah, totally yeah. off the hook. <laughs> um, and pursuing, you know, your own version of that in Alaska and then like you weaving in all the actual like scientifically backed studies on these things. Uh, it was really, it was really awesome because I, it's one thing to just tell a story and write a memoir. It's another thing to actually like show that there's some scientific validity to what we're talking about. Um, and one thing that was really interesting to me, uh, and this isn't necessarily 
this isn't a knock on, on CrossFit, but when you were talking about injury rates specifically, you know, rucking versus running versus like what you said, a lot of people will go to the gym and they'll just go absolutely like hardcore blackout, you know, like for 45 minutes, but then the rest of their life is fully sedentary, you know, injury rates could be higher in, in that instance compared to someone who just like moves all day long. Um, and how we're not necessarily built to just sit all day and then go absolutely full send for 45 minutes. And I thought that was really interesting because while I'm, you know, I always obviously argue that like, Hey, if all you can fit into your schedule is that 45 minute or one hour class, and then that's all you got, that's certainly better than nothing. However, I just, I like the idea of like, how can you, how can you weave in more hobbies? How can you weave in more things that that cause you to do, uh, you know, the, the weight carrying that cause you to do more like long, longer efforts. And here in Colorado, I've realized that like, I've gotten so much more fit and felt so much better, even though I'm, I'm doing a little bit less CrossFit per se, I'm doing a lot more like peppered into my schedule, like these longer bike rides, um, or these, you know, or obviously like rucking or packing out an animal or something like that, or, um, or actually just hiking, like hiking with a backpack on and, and with a little bit of load, like uh, backcountry snowboarding is another one that's, you know, we're, we're hiking just in a different way. And I just like realized how, how much value that's brought into my life. So I just, I really encourage anyone listening. Like one of the best things that I found for my fitness is to find a couple hobbies that you love that have some sort of like longer endurance piece to it. Um, and yes, longer endurance with a little bit of load there's something about it that I absolutely love. And also there's something about it mentally that pushes you to a place that you just, you don't seem to get in a, in a 30 minute CrossFit class or a one hour CrossFit class. And I know John, you've, you've been adding some like longer endurance sessions to your training, right? Yeah. Well, I've done, I've done that for quite a while. Um, mostly because I, you know, I'm always kind of a skeptic. Like I look at these CrossFit workouts and they're 10 minutes long. I'm like, there's no way that's enough, <laughs> you know? And, and I have a sedentary job. Like I have a bank job. You know, and so I know that like I need to move more. So I, I actually plan my, my, you know, kind of out of gym, gym time around my gym time, you know, mowing the yard and, you know, walks and wherever, whatever else I need to do to make sure I'm getting more activity than just sitting on the couch. You know, like I've, I've had, it's always been a theory to me. And so it's nice to hear that there's, you know, uh, your book coming out about this. I've watched my own family at a, ironically, a grandfather who was a farmer and uh, lived to be, I, I may get this wrong, but he was in his mid nineties when he passed away. But this was a guy, he never worked out a day in his life, but up until his late eighties in the Mississippi heat would be out mowing the yard in long sleeve flannel shirts and overalls and, and, you know, full work, you know, and they raised all their own food and he ate bacon and, you know, all these foods that, that doctors would, you know, or people would tell you is bad for you, but there was nothing that was processed that he didn't raise or kill himself, you know, or grow. And uh, so I have always been convinced that it's the things that we're creating that are giving people heart disease. You know, like I can't believe it's not butter in my opinion, I should say before they sue me, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or just, you know, processed foods and foods that are, you know, you know, high in saturated fats and, you know, artificial substances, Whereas, you know, he was, you know, you know, it was butter and, and pig fat and 
you know, these animals right off his farm his whole life and, you know, lived into his nineties. I mean, you can't, can't make it much longer than that and was in good health until his early nineties, you know? And so, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm all in on movement as medicine and, you know, not leading a sedentary lifestyle. I'm, I'm really interested though, to hear what more of these creature comforts are that I need to get rid of that are in the book. They're trying to, I need to pick a few of them off, I think. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I would to add to your um, comment about more longer outdoor exercise, Ben, is that if you have a, if you're doing a workout at the gym, it's very easy to just go, you know, this sucks. <laughs> I'm going to quit or I'm just going to have, I'm going to use a lighter weight. I'm going to half ass it, yep. whatever. Um, what I really like the most about uh, doing outdoor endurance stuff is I'll be like, okay, I want to run, let's say it's like, you know, 10 miles, whatever the number is. Well, if I go five, I have to do five back, right? Like there's no way. And I do trail running. Um, so it's like, it's not like I can call my wife and be like, Hey, come pick me up. I'm down at the seven 11 having a recovery <laughs> slurpee here. Right. Um, so I do think that that's another case because I think it just pushes people out of the normal comfort zone and, gets them to do a little more because you get yourself into a position where you have to dig a little bit deeper. Right? I mean, when you looked at how much our ancestors moved a day, it was about 14 times more than the average person moves today. And that's, that wasn't just walking, right? That was because when we think about like how um, life has changed, bringing it back to comfort, I mean, what are we all doing right now? We're all sitting in chairs, right? When you look at how, um, people would have traditionally sat, it used a lot more um, muscle generally, lightly, right? So to keep your torso up, you're having to use your back muscles, maybe you squatted more, maybe you knelt more, maybe you did all these things where you're constantly just, your back is like slightly activated, your hips are slightly active, like everything's just kind of slightly activated to kind of keep you up and comfortable. And then um, now that we sit in chairs so long, we don't have to use those muscles, right? And so then we go to the gym and we're like, all right. I did a five minute warm up. Now it's deadlift time, baby. Uh, this is why when you look at, when you compare people who, uh, lift in the gym compared to people who don't lift people who lift actually tend to have, um, higher rates of back dysfunction. Uh, that's like Stu McGill stuff. You guys know who he is? The, no, I'm not from that. Oh, okay. He's this back doctor from, um, up in Canada. And he was kind of like the world's considered the world's foremost back researcher for a while. And he recently, he recently retired, but you would like him, Ben, because he's a hunter and he's he's also got this like fantastic mustache. And oh, um, nice, double yes. yeah. And um, that's some research conducted by him. So I think it's just like you look at all these different ways that ease has been programmed into our lives, and it just the effects like you see them everywhere. So one another example would be going back to um, the outdoors is time outside. The average person spends 93% of their time indoors now. Now, when you think about how humans evolved for two and a half million years, we were outdoorsy in the sense that we lived outside, right? Every day was camping. Uh, so we evolved outside uh, and we seem to have sort of adapted to that sort of environment. Now, at the same time, we have this sort of competing interest, which is that the inside is a lot more comfortable. Right? Mm -hmm. It's always 72 degrees in my house. Uh, I know what to predict here. If the weather is, the, the weather never changes in here. There's all these reasons why I would stay inside. So there's not as much incentive to go outside. 
But we also know that more time in the outdoors improves mental health in a lot of ways. So there's this idea called the nature pyramid, and it is kind of like the food pyramid, except instead of saying like this many servings of grain, eat this many of meat, eat this many of fats or whatever, it basically tells you like how long you should spend in certain types of nature, how often. So at the very bottom, there's uh, 20 minutes, three times a week. This is associated with decreases in stress, increases in focus. Next up the rung is five hours a month in more sort of backcountry-ish nature. I mean, it's sort of middle of the road. So the first rung, like you can get that from a city park or whatever. The second rung is what you might find in a state park. So it's a little bit wilder, but it's not like super far removed. And that's associated with increases in happiness and decreases in depression. Then at the very top is this uh, concept called the three-day effect. And it basically says that three days once a year in the back country, this is stuff you would like have to hike into. You're not going to get cell service, that type of stuff. Uh, what happens is really interesting. And that's that in the human brain in everyday life, we ride what are called beta waves. And these are like these frenetic go, go, go anxiety ridden waves, right? Once we have our third day, once we're at day three in the backcountry, our brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. And these are the same waves that are generally found in experienced meditators. So they're associated with like calm, with feelings of just like, oh man, the world is so good. Everything is perfect. And what tends to happen is that these feelings that you get, they tend to last. They don't just like wash off when you get home. So a lot of uh, researchers are starting to look at extended time in nature as a way for veterans to combat, uh, combat PTSD. And, you know, we're just, we just like, don't spend that much time in nature anymore. Right. And I think it's one of the many reasons, uh, why you're seeing mental health problems just off the chart, like off the charts. I think the CDC recently said that we're facing a mental health crisis, like declared it, you know, alongside this like pandemic we're having, um, if they said it was crazy. a comfort crisis, I bet your book would sell a lot better. <laughs> I hope I, they would, man. <laughs> I, I think I think they're spot on. I mean, I, I can tell you as someone who deals with the general public day in and day out, you know, it took about a year of the pandemic of people being locked inside for them to get freaking nuts. Like I was we were literally having to undergo new training at work on how to deal with aggressive customers that we'd never had to deal with before. And people were losing their minds over the simplest little things. It wasn't even like big problems we were having to solve. It was just like any tiniest, you know, the tiniest inconvenience and people were absolutely just losing their minds saying the most horrible things you could ever imagine. You know, it's really, yeah. what, uh, really. You work, in, you work in banking, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Retail banking. Okay. And, and you know, so it's just general public walking in, but you know, you'd, you know, as an example, I remember one day with this, uh, you know, I'll, I'll change names to protect the innocent here. But, you know, we had places for people to stand like everybody else on the planet at the time, you know, six feet apart. And uh, some customers, uh, you know, not really on the spot. And he's a little bit too close to the customer in front of him. So one of my managers says to him, hey, would you mind, you know, stepping back a little on social distancing? And he explodes on her, calls her the worst name you could ever call a woman. You can just imagine what it is. Like, it was like just shockingly bad, like right yeah, in the middle I mean, of the lobby. And you never see that. Like, you just, you don't, you know, occasionally you will, like once every 10 years, you'll see somebody lose their mind. But that became like kind of an everyday occurrence where you're just putting out those kind of fires. And I was convinced it's people just being locked in their homes and, you know, unable to, you know, go where they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. 
you know? And, yeah. Yeah. And, and I definitely see that. Um, so I'm a, I'm a professor at UNLV too. And I've definitely noticed a change in my students, uh, behavior, like how, how well they deal with stress, um, how frequently they use excuses, or I guess I would just say catastrophize everyday things that should be just normal roadblocks to, to life. Right. right. It's like everyone's problem is the most important, most extreme problem that anyone has ever mm. faced. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I definitely see that there too. And I think that, you know, your anecdote is like, that's, I feel like that's been the experience of everyone. I do think you're right that it has to do with being locked inside, um, not having a good outlet for just, you know, like what's going on. Like people just, and I think people need to be around more people as well. I think that that honestly to me is like, I've written about CrossFit. So my background is that I worked at men's health as an editor for a lot of years. And so I did a couple different feature length pieces on CrossFit. I did one on uh, Glassman before he left. And then I did one on with Castro and Eric Rosa, like right as they had, right as Rosa had bought the company, basically mm -hmm. sort of looking to the future. And, you know, based on, especially the Greg one, we were kind of, it was for a 30 year anniversary issue. So what we were doing is we were, um, taking the 30 most influential people in health and fitness over the last 30 years. And Greg, uh, we had decided was going to be our number one because, you know, CrossFit totally changed the game. So I get sent out to this, uh, to a CrossFit health conference or level one rather, uh, at the ranch and doing all the research for that about like why the way the piece is structured is kind of interesting. I, I won't get into, um, the nerdy details of writing, but basically I had to go down the rabbit hole about like, okay, why is CrossFit so popular? Why does it work so well? And really the number one for me was like the social aspect of it. So I talked to these like guys at uh, Harvard divinity school that actually studied it and were like, their argument is basically that CrossFit is supplanting um, things like traditional religion for a lot of, of younger people. And it's like, and it works, it's doing the exact same thing. Like when you look at people who are religious versus non-religious, Religious people tend to live longer. Yeah. Right. And it's because of the social element of that. And I think that that's what is the beauty of CrossFit. So when those boxes shut down, that takes a lot away from people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The community I mean, suffered hard um, from that. And, you know, to Greg's uh, credit, you know, not only did he create something to, I mean, you're spot on, feels a lot like a religion, but, you know, Greg is also has a kind of a, a cult-like way about him. Like if you interviewed him, you know, like yeah. He, oh, yeah. He, has, he has a persona, like, uh, I don't know how to, to say it right. Even it's like, there's some people that just have an aura about them that mm -hmm. makes them special. And he's one of those people. Like when you talk to him, you almost can't talk like whatever he says, even when you know, it's complete and utter bullshit. You just sit there and listen to it. Like it's gospel. You know, it's really, yeah. it's really, he's really amazing that way. And so he created yeah. this thing that, you know, people for the longest time just thought whatever he would have said, people would have done it. Yeah. They really would. And, and that's still carried over, you know, at this point we're 15 years in, I guess. And, you know, maybe yeah. longer 20 years. And he's, I mean, he's totally brilliant. I remember one time, um, I was doing some errands and 
I had sent him a question and he just saw my phone rings and it's him. And I'm like in this parking lot at like target or some shit in Las Vegas. And like, we're talking and like, I, you know, I, I always carry a notepad with me because it's the nature of my job. And he starts blabbering on about some otter something or the another. And then he, he just says, you know, like the number pi 3.14 and he names like 30 digits of pi. <laughs> just like, <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, who knows that, right? It's just like, there's de- there's definitely, he's got like some quirk where he's he's definitely a brilliant dude. Um, yeah. I enjoy, I definitely enjoyed talking to him. He's, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. He's yeah. one of those dudes. I asked him a question on a podcast once. I asked him what, it was like the simplest question ever. And he t- must've talked for 30 minutes without pausing just went on and on and on. And he used as a podcast host, you just sit there and listen, you know, but it was fascinating, like really fascinating stuff coming out of his mouth. And, you know, you don't even want to interrupt him because you're kind of hoping he's going to say something totally nuts. And, and he never did, unfortunately for me. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. He's, he's a brilliant dude for all, you know, for all his complexity and all the kind of weirdness that happened before he left. He's uh, he is a brilliant dude. There's yeah. No doubt yeah. And I want the one more thing on him is like I I ran into him like literally two days after inking the deal, uh, selling CrossFit. So when he was still in the middle of his shit storm, I ran into him randomly in Glacier National Park. Like it was crazy. Wow. This guy just limping down the down the uh, path, and there's a sign that says no dogs. He has his dog there with him, <laughs> and I'm just like, is that Greg Glassman? I was like, oh my god, it is. So I went up and said hi. And he just like, I mean, it was kind of amazing. Kind of like we said, John, like, I mean, he like genuinely wanted to know everything about me and, and what I did with CrossFit. And I couldn't come up with any words. I was like, uh, uh, just couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a good dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to that building the community. And that's partially why people went nuts during um, the pandemic. And, you know, in the book, I also write about how, when you look at uh, the year 1990, so you look at kids who were born after 1990, they tend to have higher uh, rates of mental health problems. Now, one of the reasons for this, social media played a role, but one of the reasons for this is in 1990, there were a couple of super high profile kidnappings. Okay. So kidnappings were not actually increasing, but what had happened is that there were kidnappings that got a ton of media attention. So all of a sudden parents all over the country, they react by, saying, okay, kids, that deal we had about be home when the sun comes down and the streetlights come on. No, that's, you can't do that anymore. Like we are going to, we're going to watch you we're really going to keep an eye on you. So we got to keep you safe. So helicopter parenting starts. And what happens is these kids, they no longer have these opportunities to go out and explore the world um, to have like sort of, you know, rough and tumble stuff happens when you're out there. Like I remember going out on the playground and like, you get in arguments with other kids, you get in trouble, you do, you know, you like, you fall, you get scraped, you get stuffed, scuffed. So you, you're essentially facing all these different forms of challenges. Well, when those challenges are removed, all of a sudden kids now never really know what they're capable of. And so when you put them in a classroom years later, all of a sudden someone pushing back on them, like a professor being like, well, why do you think that? Or, you know, another student calling them out or something becomes a lot more of a proposition for them because they've never faced that, right? They haven't built mental resilience. So this is one of the reasons why you see mental health problems among those age groups. And I think it's only getting worse, to be honest, uh, based on what I see 
uh, increasing so crazily. So, and I, uh, I had a, I had a thought on that earlier, actually, is like the, like we were talking about how, like when you don't, when like uh, your students were just coming to you or they like seem to get completely triggered by like the smallest things, or they would uh, come up with like crisis level excuses when it's like, no, you just got a flat tire. That's like the nature of owning a car, you know, like those kinds of things. I feel like that's potentially what makes, you know, at least for us CrossFitters, right. It's, it's potentially what makes CrossFit so much more valuable than just like the fitness element in our life is like, we're naturally exposing ourselves, just like you mentioned in the book, like we're naturally exposing ourselves to a world of hurt and problems that like we're going to run into when we go into the gym and we can't do something or we fail a lift or the workout's absolutely miserable or, you know, we're, we're introducing these problems in our life. And then when we leave the gym, all of a sudden, you know, problems aren't necessarily, they don't seem as, as big of a deal as maybe they used to. I know that's what happened to me when I started, you know, when I was able to do Murph and, you know, doing all these crazy workouts, it's like, oh man, like this is nothing compared to what I did two weeks ago in the gym. Uh, that's when I was like really starting to fall in love with fitness. Is that what you see? You know, I, I know that's kind of like the premise of the book is like, hey, when we introduce discomfort into our lives on purpose, then like the other stuff in our lives tend to get a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll answer that two ways. Um, as the main narrative in the book, which you kind of alluded to earlier with the hunting stuff, is that I spent more than a month in the Arctic on this caribou hunt. And we were like a hundred miles above the Arctic circle, totally alone. It was me and two other dudes, um, Donnie Vincent, who's this sort of famous hunter, as famous as hunters can be, I guess. And his cinematographer, because uh, Donnie makes these movies that are like unbelievable. They're like planet earth, except they have hunting in them. So on the way up to the Arctic, it takes a while to get there. It took five different flights, right? I have to fly from Vegas to Seattle, I live in Vegas to Seattle to Anchorage, to this town called Kotzebue. And then we take this plane that's like literally the size of a freaking pack of gum out into the middle of the Arctic. Now, those first flights, when I'm going from Vegas to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage, I hate flying. Okay, like I hate, I, I hate everything about flying. The plane is too hot. The snacks suck. The coffee sucks. The, the seat back entertainment sucks. When you go to the bathroom, it's like cramped. It's awful. There's screaming kids. Like, like who likes flying? Right? No one. Flying is objectively terrible. Well, then we spend a month in the Arctic. So if I want water, I have to hike down to the stream to get it. And then I got to carry it all the way back up. If I want to get warm, well, tough. It's always cold. It's literally always cold. <laughs> I'm hungry. The entire time, because we only pack in about 2000 calories a day, but we're burning way more than that, maybe 4000 to 6000, something like that. So I start dumping weight and like, I've never been like seriously hungry for an extended period of time. If I want to go to the bathroom, I got to walk out on the tundra and I just got to squat and go. And I also have to bring the rifle because there's grizzly bears out there. So I told you that to basically tell you when I get back on that flight that goes from Kotzebue to Anchorage to whatever. Like, what do you think my experience of that? Flight yeah, like, was like, this is the most incredible the thing ever. in the world. <laughs> oh God. It was unbelievable. I hadn't sat in a chair for more than a month. So all of a sudden the airplane chain chair is, as you said, it is amazing. Those movies that I thought sucked 
like, you know, watching Fast and the Furious 99 and it's like, oh my God, this movie's, this is unbelievable. This is the greatest movie I've ever seen. And I just like have infinite access to snacks. I'm like, you know, everyone give me your peanuts. This normally shitty coffee is just tastes like it's perfect. And then when I need to go to the bathroom, not only, you know, do I not have to take the rifle, but warm hot water comes out of a faucet at 30,000 feet above sea level, which is a long way of saying like, what the hell do like most people have to complain about anymore? And I'm not saying by any means that people don't have problems in their life. I know they do, but those problems in the grand scheme of time and space are usually pretty meager. They're not that big of a deal. And even if they are that big of a deal, we probably have a lot better equipment in order to handle them. For example, a health problem, a relationship problem. There's all, all sorts of resources we have now, right? But the human brain, if you look at it, is they've done studies on this. Where it's actually designed to find problems. So there's this concept called, oh, I'm going to forget it off the top of my mind. I won't give you the science-y name. You can basically think about it as comfort creep. It's called prevalence-induced concept change. That's what the nerds call it, but I just call it comfort creep. So they've done this research where they will have a group of people look at 800 different faces and they will go face to face and they will have them be like, okay, you guys need to tell me, is this face threatening or non-threatening? And they'll show them face after face. So the people are going threatening, non-threatening, 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 ooh, threatening. Now, without the participants knowing, the scientists at about the 200th face, they start to show them fewer and fewer threatening faces. So fewer faces, right? Now, if this were sort of black or white, you would think that the people would start to say threatening fewer times over the course of the study. Right? But what actually happens is that people just say threatening the same exact amount of times. They start to look for threatening faces, and they've done similar studies with different setups. They basically show that the human brain is designed to find problems because it makes judgments based on the examples that have come before that it's experienced. So this is a long way of saying when we think about the problems that we face in daily life, we sort of continually move the goalpost. This is sort of the science of first world problems. And right? it's like what used to be normal yesterday can become not enough today. Right? Almost like hedonic treadmill, but adapt, uh, apply it to problems. I'm just still trying to get past going outside to take a poop and have him take a gun with me. <laughs> can you imagine what a horrible Very, way to die that would be just so oh, that would be the worst way to die so humiliating michael easter 35 dead today after grizzly bear oh, attacked man. him as he was shitting on the tundra <laughs> mid pinch oh, oh love it mid -pinch. um michael one of my another thing that i would love to like we've talked about obviously like I love the idea of comfort creep. I love uh, this concept of like, hey, we're always we're always looking for problems. And actually, Mark Manson, one of my favorite authors, talks about like, don't ask for a world without problems; it doesn't exist. Ask for a world with better problems, right? And that's kind of what we're we're experiencing, right? Like, all three mm -hmm. of us are problems right now. Are in the grand scale of the cosmic universe is pretty small. What would you? tell people to do like if people are looking to invite more difficulty into their life so that they can be hardened or to put their problems into perspective 
obviously almost everyone listening to this podcast is going to a CrossFit gym, you know, a few times a week, and they're trying to get better at like the sport of CrossFit. And they've kind of, they love that piece, but what would you maybe like suggest for them to do as something extra, something beyond just going to a gym a few times a week to help develop that, like that mental hardness and, and, you know, ultimately live a happier life, but a life where you can be more resilient. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how kids don't have rites of passage anymore. Well, most adults haven't gone through a traditional rite of passage either. So in the book, I talk about this concept named Masogi. Now I learned about this idea of Masogi from this guy whose name is Marcus Elliott. And he is a performance scientist basically who works with, has contracts with the NBA and NFL and all this stuff. And he's very like numbers and data oriented. He uses these like, uses these like AI computer programs to monitor people's movement and then give them like, okay, it looks like you're going to have this injury or whatever. Um, but he also realizes that what improves human performance and potential for everyone can't always be measured. Right. There's like these certain intangibles that people have. It's like, I guess you would call it mental toughness or something. And to get to those, he does this idea, this uh, practice that he calls Masogi. Now, the idea is that as humans evolved, we had to do hard stuff all the time, like take on big, epic challenges. Could be from a big, epic hunt. Could be from moving to summer into wintering grounds. Could be from a tiger lurking in the bushes. And each time we would take on one of these big challenges, we would basically learn what we were capable of, right? And to live was to basically be, t- be challenged. But in modern life, we don't really have those sorts of challenges anymore. Like how many people are like, well, I'm going to starve to death unless I complete this, you know, epic <laughs> buffalo hunt or yeah. get across this mountain peak. Uh, so we, we're often not shown what we're, we're capable of physically. And um, I mean, CrossFit is comparatively a very hard thing to do, right? But if it's like a life or death thing that we would face in the past, like we had to dig much deeper than that. So the idea of a Masogi is that we're going to try and get to that point where we have to dig much deeper. And he, uh, there's two rules to Masogi. And rule number one is that what you do has to be really hard. This is some single task that you do once a year. Rule number two is that you can't die. So that one's, that one's pretty straightforward. Just don't be dumb. Now, rule number one, the, we define that by basically saying you should have a 50-50 shot at finishing whatever it is you choose to do, which is nice because it personalizes it, right? Uh, my 50% is probably going to be different than yours. It's going to be different than yours. Uh, but the idea is that if you choose something that is appropriately challenging with like a real 50-50 shot, you think you have a 50-50 shot of finishing it. Because today, if you think about it, most people, when we take on physical challenges, like we know we're going to finish. People don't run marathons going, I don't know if I'm going to finish. They go, I don't know if I'm going to finish in three hours and 45 minutes or whatever it is. Right. So if you choose something you really think you're going to fail, you're going to hit this moment where you're going to want to quit. You're going to think you have to quit. Like, I don't, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm done, not going to be able to do it. But if you can just sort of keep going past that, you get this other moment where you can look back and go, well, wait a minute back there. I thought I was totally done. I had to quit. I was spent, but I'm past that perceived edge. I thought, which suggests that you're selling yourself short. Right. And then the bigger question is, and I think this kind of goes to what we were talking about with problems and how CrossFit can help reframe that, is what else in your life are you selling yourself short on? So this is like a once a year thing. 
Um, I've flowed this into my life. It sounds, sounds out there <laughs> and it kind of is, but it really is the same as rites of passage that we had in the past. When you look at all these different societies across the world, traditional societies, they all had rites of passage. And it's not like they all sent each other a letter or called each other up and said, hey, we should all do this. It's like these just naturally popped up in all these different societies. This idea of sending a young person out into nature to do something challenging, they all just popped up because that's ultimately how you get someone to the next point in their life is to have them take on a big challenge. So I think, so I think my, the short answer is like, do something that's challenging. No, really challenging. No, more challenging than that. No, to the point mm. where you think you're probably going to fail and go see if you fail or not, right? And even if you do fail, you're going to, I guarantee you're going to go way further than you thought you were going to in the first place. And that, that realization, I think, is powerful. And again, this is not something you do like every week or else you're going mm. to cause some problems. This is like a once a year thing and you, you know, you'll leave with some bruises and you might, you know, you might limp for 48 hours, but totally worth it psychologically for what it gives you. Mm. And then I think there was another point in there, if I remember correctly, reading the book that I loved is that you're, you're not doing it for anyone else. Like it's better if you don't tell anyone about it. And I think that's something that even like in today's modern social media world, we don't realize how many things that we do just because we have like perceived social pressure to like post about it or to tell everyone how badass we are. But you you mentioned in the book something about like not telling anyone. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, yeah, you nailed that. I love that you brought that up. That that's totally um, one of the guidelines is don't post on social media. But like, if you want to talk to your friends about it, if they have questions, totally fine. But like, the point of this is not to do it for the gram to sort of advertise like, oh, I did this big badass thing, um, because that to your point is a lot of reason why people go do crazy things like that. Right. And so it's like, you get a really good Instagram picture. So it sort of reframes it to like, no, this is 100% for you. And we're going to reinforce that by saying, don't share it at all. Uh, another thing that sort of reinforces that is another guideline, which is to make it like totally weird and made up and quirky because another reason why people will do things is to beat out another person. Right. It's like, if I, if I'm going to run a marathon and I learned that my next door neighbor ran it in three forty. All of a sudden, my goal is three thirty nine, right? Yeah. So it's sort of this random comparison shopping. But if you if you just pick something that's totally made up, it's like you don't have anyone to you can't compare it to anything, right? So you're just going to once you remove a lot of the artificial constraints that we're often work within in sport, you see that you can do a lot more. Mm. It's really interesting. We've talked about it on the show before. I've always kind of viewed it as the power of experience. Like, you know, when you do something really difficult, like I've had multiple races and events that have been kind of horrific on my body, but I've been able to look back on those events. And, and when I'm doing something that's lesser, but I want to quit, I've always been able to just mentally tell myself, you've been here before. You've been through worse. You've done far worse than this. You can go for another 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And I've, I've never connected the science behind that until just now. So that's really, really interesting. Yeah. And I think you, I love the word you use with experience and that's how we ultimately learn is through, is through experience, right? Like I can talk at my students about how to write all day, but I ultimately, I have to have them write you know, so they can like see how it all comes together. And that, that applies to like literally everything. And I think that a lot of times we don't um, talk enough about how experience is ultimately what 
like taking on challenges is how people um, become mentally, physically stronger. And we just sort of need to throw ourselves into the fire. Um, but with how we've constructed the world now and the way things are with schedules is it's harder to find that right fire. Right. So I think you have to get a little bit creative, which is the whole idea behind Masogi. Is there a type of person that's wired this way? Oh yeah. But here's the thing though. Here's what I've noticed about that. Like, okay. Most people who do CrossFit are going to have like, you know, they're going to be, yeah, we're all different. nuts. You can say yeah. we're all crazy. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're a little bit nutty, right? It's yeah. like, who wants to do that? Um, what draws someone to that at the same time? What I found is that a person who, if someone is like, really like, that's great. You're doing CrossFit. A lot of times there's probably some other aspect that they don't want to touch. So for example, I have friends that if I was just called them up and was like, Hey dude, I bet you can't run a hundred miles. They'd be like, screw you. And they'd go run the hundred miles. But if I was like, Hey dude, I bet you can't sit in alone in silence with your thoughts or have a real honest, open conversation with your wife for five minutes. They'd be oh. like, they'd be like, yeah, you know what? I actually can't do that. It's like, <laughs> okay, well clearly we have some sort of mismatch here that we might want to address. Right. So I think, I think part of it, um, part of it is figuring out what are you afraid of? And if you've gotten really, really good at CrossFit, well, it might be something else that you just totally need to be like, you know what? I've never tried this in my life. I'm going to like practice it for a couple of days and then give it hell and just see what happens. You know, that's really interesting. I had, um, Natalie Anderson on my other show. She was a winner of survivor and the show on CBS. And she's actually spit on two or three times. She finished first one time and she came in second another time. And she's got the same kind of personality you're describing. Like, you know, has been, you know, they, they put their bodies through hell, kind of like what, what it sounds like you did at the Arctic, only without the prize, you know, in, in your case, you get mauled by a grizzly, grizzly, and <laughs> in her case, you won a million bucks. Um, but they have this mindset that, you know, while they're going through these like kind of horrible body challenges and losing weight and trying to figure out where their next meal's coming from, they're backstabbing, they're able to problem solve how to backstab someone. You know, it's a, yeah. a really, really interesting dynamic. And when you talk to her after, you know, we had her on obviously after, and it's all like such a positive experience for her, which was really fascinating to me that, you know, she goes out there and like, and quite literally nearly kills herself, you know, through starvation and, and, you know, the, all the emotional drama that comes from it. And then in hindsight, it's just like this bubbly, carefree, happy person because of it. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, there's this uh, there's this concept called the optimal stimulation theory, and it basically argues that all animals need a certain level of stimulation in their life in order to feel um, good, feel normal. And if we don't, and especially with humans, if we don't get an optimal optimal form of stimulation, we go searching for it in the form of you know random. Like, what do rent, what do people pass the time with now? We buy shit, maybe we drink, we do drugs, um, we gamble, that kind of Thanks. stuff. Um, and I think that when you put someone in an environment that they have to be on, that they're like, that more closely mimics, I guess, the environments that we evolved in, where you kind of have to have your head on the swivel all the time. I think that that really speaks to us because it provides that sort of optimal stimulation. So I'm working on another book and I just spent um, like a week in Iraq, a couple, like a month ago. And let me tell you, like, 
that was so compelling to me, right? Because I'm having to keep my head on a swivel the whole time. I'm having to make judgment calls about who to trust, who not to trust, what situations to trust, what situations not to trust. I'm having to do all these things because, you know, journalists are targets over there and ISIS would love to have me on CNN, you know? Um, And I got home and it's like, I want to go back, you know? And I can see how that becomes like addictive to people who put themselves in those sort of situations where you're just like, you have to be on, you know? And And I think that part of it is that life today can be, it can be rather dull comparatively, you know? So I don't know. Yeah. You're describing the mindset of, um, like I have a brother-in-law who's military and that was always his mindset. Like he was dying to go to war zones. You know, that's just how they're wired. Like they just, they want to be where the action is. And it's not, they want to go kill people. They like, he wasn't, he was air force. So he wasn't, you know, like infantry or anything like that, but he wanted to be there. He wanted to be in Iraq. Yeah. You know, and I could never wrap my mind around it. Now it's all making sense to me why he wanted to go, you know? Yeah. I think there's a book about this. I just started listening to it the other day uh, on a long drive. I haven't uh, picked it back up, but it was, I think it's called war is a force that makes us human or gives us meaning or something like that, where I think the guy sort of explores this. And he's a guy who wrote it as a conflict journalist, but I had a long conversation with a friend who was in the CIA over there from, I think, 2000 maybe five to eight. And he's the same way. He's like, dude, like I want, like the place ruined me and I just want to go back all the time. That's all I want to do. You know? Um, mm. Yeah. It's strange, but I do think, I mean, that, and I was going to say, I, say I, go I, ahead. I think that's like the exact, like what you're saying right there is the exact feeling that I feel in a different way. Like when I'm in the woods, like when I'm hunting, when I have like that mission, it's like, you're not, you're not just like there, you know, being there because there's nothing dangerous around me right now. And I don't have to keep my head on the swivel. I don't have to be like listening for anything, but when you're in the woods, like hunting or when you're trying to avoid avalanches in the background, it's like, you are like, there's something inside of you that's turned on and it's almost primal. And I imagine the war zone is thing is very, very similar. That's also how I feel Ben when I'm on the internet trying to find a new guitar. (laughs) <laughs> and i'm very successful at it if you can see them all behind me i like there it, it. Um, no i think so i mean that's why you know people get so into hunting and like i i've continued to hunt since the book and like that's it it's like you're outside you're like very engaged and dialed in um there's just so many reasons why that would speak to humans at a level that other things don't you know this it, I've always had this theory of around CrossFit um, that part of the reason why it's so cult-like is because the workouts are so hard. It's I've often related it to soldiers going into battle, meaning like you, you have this shared suffering and I'm not trying to compare what we do to what soldiers do by any stretch of the imagination, but there is a shared suffering in the, you know, kind of that hour where you're all doing the same hard stuff and it's really, really difficult. And then when it's over, you get a, congratulate the person next to you that you've just watched suffer for an hour, mm-hmm. you know, and I've always had that feeling that that's why CrossFit's so tight because you've got this, this shared bond of, of difficulty, you know, or experiences mm-hmm. we're saying, you know? Yeah. A hundred. Yeah. I, I, you nailed it hundred percent. And I, I definitely agree that that's one of the reasons why it's so successful. And I mean, it's a great, 
it's so interesting because I worked at mental for so long. And like, I feel like if you, if, if a person wasn't in CrossFit, their MO was to not like CrossFit. <laughs> like it's still like that. <laughs> yeah. And I just never, I never understood it. And I would talk to like these, you know, these trainers that are like, quote unquote, um, sort of famous. And I'd be like, well, why don't you like CrossFit? And they'll be like, well, the, uh, the programs are kind of dangerous. I'm like, well, you train football players. What do you think is more dangerous CTE or CrossFit? <laughs> right. And they're like, yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Let me think about that. And it's just like, everything involves a level of risk. It's like, we want to reduce that risk, but like the reward is so much higher for a lot of these things. Right. I mean, you can't remove risk from your life entirely. And in doing so your life would be awful. And I don't think it's possible. You just encounter new risks, right? If you lived in a bubble, all of a sudden now the risk is that you're just trying to like kill yourself somehow, you know, so it'd be germs or something. Yeah. (laughs) Pick your risk. Catching a cold. Oh, love it. So I know we're coming up on time and I I have in my notes, I really want uh, to talk about one of my favorite pieces of the book. And we kind of come full circle here is uh, Mitakpa. Talk to me a little bit about what that is. And, uh, and I actually have a reminder on my phone three times a day now to remember. I love it. That's awesome, man. I love it. Uh, well, uh, like I'll set this up by saying that I started thinking about this because we're hunting in the Arctic and, you know, before I went up there, I wasn't really a hunter and this Donnie dude was basically like, I think that you will understand the story you're trying to communicate more if you hunt. And so I decided to hunt. It was very hard for me. I had a lot of moments where I was like, I had bought this hunting tag. I had carried this rifle across the Arctic for two weeks. And still I'm like, yeah, I don't have to, I don't have to shoot. But we eventually found this animal that was old. Uh, it was limping. It had been injured somehow and it just felt right. And I ended up pulling the trigger. And my first reaction was like horror. I'm like, what have you done, dude? Like, you're not coming back from this. No way. And I was totally bent out of shape. But once we started to break the animal down, I could see like, oh, it's meat. Just, I eat meat every single day at home. And like, never once do I feel any iota of emotion for that. And like, I don't even think about it. Oh. But here I am now, like, you know, half crying out in the middle of the Arctic over this. Um, so that was a strange experience. And it sort of, but more importantly, kind of made me realize like very much cemented in my mind um, the fact that for one creature to live on, another has to die. Like, I think you can think of that theoretically sort of, but to your point about experience, it's like, once you've actually done that, it's just like, Oh, holy shit. And I'm not excluded from that deal. So it got me thinking about death and how do other cultures treat it. And because in the United States, we kind of just ignore it. You know, you look at our funeral system and it's, Make the person look as alive as possible. Look at them for an hour, say a few nice words, put them in the ground. And then we're told to take our mind off it, stay busy, that sort of thing. Um, Our food system is very much, we use euphemisms for what are basically muscles. And we, you know, we call it meat. Like we just don't want it to seem like the, the meat has come from an animal. So I traveled to Bhutan and this is a super small country. It's about the size of South Carolina. It's uh, on the border of Nepal and India. And this place has a totally different relationship with death. So they uh, citizens are told to think about their death anywhere from one to three times a day. 
And death is totally woven into the culture and like the art and plays and all these different stuff centers around death. And there's even these things called sasas, which are just all over the country. And it's um, ashes of the dead mixed with clays into mixed with clay into these pyramids. And these things are everywhere. I mean, they're in every windowsill. You go around like a bend on the road, there might be like 300 of them there, you know? So it's this constant reminder. And so as part of this, um, let me back up real quick. And one of the, one of the things that's interesting about Bhutan is that even though they are very underdeveloped, there's no outside businesses. Um, they're one of generally one of the lowest ranked countries in development. They always score in the top 20 most happy countries in the world. So in the U S we generally think like, Oh, resources make you happy. This is clearly showing that that's not always the case. And they think that that awareness of death has something to do with the, these really high levels of happiness that the country uh, has. So I travel there. It's like two, three, two days of travel, basically two, three days, all these flights. And when we get there, one of the people that I met with was a guy who is essentially sort of like the, like we have the secretary of defense and the, the secretary of commerce or whatever, they have a secretary of happiness basically. And he talked a lot about the research he does and how this um, awareness of death factors in and all these other things. And then I travel to meet this, uh, meet this guy who wrote a book about the topic and he's this Buddhist monk because Buddhism is sort of the main religion in Bhutan. And to get to this guy, I have the driver. You have to hire a driver in Bhutan by law, by law. We get in this guy's smart car and we like bomb up this dirt road, like four by four. And this is like, I'm just thinking this car isn't going to make it. And he drops me off. I have to walk along this uh, trail to get to this like Buddhist monk shack. And it's in, it's right by this big monastery on a cliff. And I, I go into this like shack in the first room, there's literally nothing in it. The next is like this kitchen that only has, I don't even think it had running water. I think it was like a bucket system, a couple basic tools for cooking. And then I like peel back the drape on the third room and it's like super, like there's like incense smoke in the air. There's this big like statue of, of Buddha and like all these like candles and incense and stuff. And I like look over and through the smoke, there's this dude and he's like, you know, shaved head in the orange Buddhist robes, he's in the Lotus position he's meditating and he looks at me and he just goes, welcome. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> it was just like in the back of my mind, I'm just like, Oh, Holy shit. This is like something, this is like totally from a movie, right? Like this is unbelievable. Uh, but I sit with the guy and I talk to him for maybe like three hours and he basically described it like this. He goes, okay, I want you to pretend that you are walking on a trail. Now the catch is, uh, and there's a, there's a cliff at the end of this trail. Now the catch is that the cliff is death. Well, wouldn't you like to know that there's a cliff there that you're ultimately going to walk off? He goes in America, you guys don't want to know about the cliff in Bhutan. We want to know about the cliff because if we know about the cliff, it's going to change our behavior might change how we walk the trail the conversations we have with the people walking it, how we interact and look at the nature around the trail, right? So what, what tends to happen is that when people think about their death, 
it alters their behavior in such a way that they tend to make decisions that are going to improve their life because you start to focus more on what matters. And this is, uh, it sounds kind of far out, but this has actually been backed up by studies in the United States. There was one where they had a group of people uh, think about their death and another group think of uh, something totally random. And the group who thought about their death reported higher happiness levels over the short and long term. And it's because changes the decisions you make, right? You're not going to get as worked up about some email that some coworker sent you that maybe or maybe wasn't a slight, I don't know, that someone, you know, cut you off in traffic or butted you in a line, like this stuff you realize that stuff doesn't really matter. And also it just helps you make even bigger decisions like this is the career that I'm in, what I want to be in. Am I, am I using this very short ride in the grand scheme of time and space in the way that I want to, right? Because you can pick the ride you want to be on. So if you're on the crappy ride, you should probably make a decision and get on the other ride because they're both going to end at some point. Hmm. Ben, are you on the crappy, are you on the crappy ride? No, man, I'm on a great ride right now. And I literally like in my phone every day, it says, Remember Mitakpa, you and everyone you love will die one day and it's really not that far away. <laughs> With a there you go, face. dude. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, I, I remember like saying that to, I posted on Instagram and people were like, oh, pretty morbid, man. And I'm like, why? It's a, like, it's a fact. And right. if anything, that should make us like excited to like not do shit that we hate. Yeah. And it was like, it's so freeing. And so I, so I love that. So thank you for 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 sharing that that was one of my one of many little like nuggets from the book that i'm like oh man i can apply this not yeah, just awesome. like theory it's like i can apply this i want to steal it and use it tomorrow when i get cut off in traffic we go hey buddy i'm gonna die soon so bless you <laughs> bless you for doing totally. that or you can twist around and be like you are gonna die soon and then that's gonna <laughs> <Yeah>. be weird <laughs> there you go i like it and again like to, to get back to the theme of the book it's uncomfortable at first you're just like oh my god like once that sets in, it is very, very uncomfortable. Like the most uncomfortable thing you could ever think about. But on the other side of that, you go, okay, well, can I change it? And we'll know. Okay. Well, what the hell can I do about it? Something figure it out, man. Cause the, the clock is literally ticking. So that's, that's very interesting. We've had a lot of discussions around the house lately around death and, made a lot of jokes about, you know, as I, as I'm getting older, so it's like been more of a topic. And, uh, we were joking the other day that, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I told them, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be one of these people like waste away and die from dementia. Like I'm going to go to Vegas and get some hookers and some blow and just, <laughs> and just go in one weekend, go totally happy. That's been like the running joke around the house with me and my 18 year old daughter. I love it. And uh, we'll take you. But, but I think this, this, oh, yeah, he's in Vegas, man. In just Vegas. Going Michael. Yeah, now I'm just coming to visit you. It's going to be yeah. <laughs> going to be even better. But now, now I need to read the book because I'm really interested uh, kind of in this mentality of, you know, thinking about what's next and, and how that alters that journey. So that's very, very cool. I'm also jealous of all these trips you've taken. Like I drove to the west side of Cleveland last week and acted like I'd just been on the greatest journey of my life. I was just going to a mall to go shopping because they had Banana Republic, you know. <laughs> well, I've never, I've never been to Cleveland, man. So there you go. Hey, well, I guess I've got I've one up on you. Then I got you. So. There you go. I like well, it. I really appreciate you joining, uh, mostly because this is the most prepared Ben has ever been for one of our podcasts. So <laughs> I love it. 
So that, that part's really good, but your book sounds fascinating. So where can they find it? Uh, let's make sure we get some shout outs here. If they want to buy your book, Amazon. Yeah. Amazon. Amazon's easiest. Uh, you can't beat that two day prime or actually most people just do the um, audiobook. we've noticed. Okay. So if you're an audiobook person, which honestly for a CrossFit crowd, like if you listen and train, um, I'm all about that too. It's on audio. I read it. If you have, uh, if you found my voice annoying over the last hour, I would suggest you get the print edition. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I'm on Instagram. Uh, that's where I started talking to Ben and I got a website, eastermichael.com. And yeah, it's, you know, Google's a thing you can, people can find me. Yeah. Well go buy this book, people. I'm going to get it and, uh, start reading it and then we'll have you back on it. I can talk more intelligently on it. <laughs> I like it. I'm always down to come on. Hey, and Michael. Yeah, before you go, I got what's the new book you're working on? Because now I'm all excited. Oh, I mean, it's it's um, it's sort of an offshoot of the last one. It looks at how humans generally evolved in environments of scarcity of all different things. So food, stuff, information, the number of people we could influence, all this different stuff. And we now have an abundance of so many of those things. And um, I've been doing a lot of like this weird, I spent a lot of time working with people who design slot machines in Las Vegas and slot machines are an analogy for a lot of um, tech in our lives today and not just social media. So social media is obvious, but like there's all these different things that it's analogous to. And there's a good reason that people get pulled into that kind of stuff. And it all sort of moves us in this direction we have of trying to acquire more. And it looks at how that's backfiring, this new stuff that's being sort of inserted into that equation. And um, it's been, when I first started working on the book, I was like, okay, this will be fun. And now that I'm into it, I'm just like, holy shit, this is wild. So I'm excited cool. about it. Yeah. Sweet. Good stuff. Hey, before you sign off, someone asked in the chat, I sent him a chat back, but we need to shout it out. We have a, we have a uh, sponsor, Thirdsy, that we talk about. It's actually not their week. Uh, but they're a sleep supplement and someone asked for the code. The code is scales S C A L E Z Z Z. Go to thirdz.com and uh, get your sleep supplement. And it's awesome. And we'll talk about them next week when we're back on, because it's not their week, but right on. and shout out <laughs> to plug. shout out to Lance needing. I'm sorry. I hurt your stupid brain with deep <laughs> thinking. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> right for on. those that don't see his comment is all this deep thinking hurts my stupid brain, but good deep thinking could be one of your things that you, you add that uncomfortable thing into your brain and then all of a sudden it'll get easier. Amen. Love it. There you go. All right. Well, for everyone uh, listening and watching, appreciate you guys joining and we'll catch up with you guys next week.